0: I hope that you will turn with me in a Bible to the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, as we look together at the very end of chapter 19, beginning at verse 41, and we'll continue through chapter 20, verse 2. What we find here are events that took place Around 1,000 years before the arrival of Jesus Christ. So around 3,000 years removed from us now. And so I want to begin by giving you some context. And I want to show you why you should care about something that happened so long ago. The books of First and 2 Samuel center on the figure of King David. King David, and while he came to be one of Israel's greatest kings, Israel's greatest king, in fact, he started in a very humble place. God chose him to be the king over his people while he was still a shepherd boy. God had him anointed, God prepared him, God elevated him and promoted him. God protected him from all those who would threaten his rise to the throne. And God firmly established David as the exclusive king over his people. And not only that, God in 2 Samuel 7 makes a promise to David. He says, David, from your family and out of your household, I am going to establish an eternal kingdom. And it's a kingdom that we can receive right now, by the way. Despite the distance of time, it's the same kingdom. Only the son of David who reigns over it is the Lord Jesus Christ. But despite all that God had done for David, he committed a grievous sin and committed what has become the classic example of adultery. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. And then, to try to cover up his error, he had her husband murdered. God responds to David's transgression, not by killing him, but by forgiving him while also allowing him to reap what he had sown. Consequently, violence breaks out in David's household. This, this kingdom, that this, this family, that is supposed to become an eternal kingdom, is wrecked by one disaster after another. So that as readers, we're wondering, where is this kingdom? How is this kingdom ever going to be established? And it even gets to the point where David's son, Absalom, the one who stood to be heir to the throne, rebels against his father, pushes his father off the throne, exiles his father outside of Jerusalem. But God vindicates his king. He allows Absalom to be defeated in a humiliating fashion. So now that Absalom has been defeated, it seems that there's nothing in the way of returning David to the throne. All they have to do is bring him back to Jerusalem, to the capital city. That's it. And yet, in this moment, when we should have such a a glorious, joyful occasion, God's king has been vindicated, it's time to celebrate most of David's people end up walking away from him. They desert him. What? Again? Now that Absalom's been defeated, how could we have another rebellion? How is this possible? How is this kingdom ever going to be established? How do we explain this desertion? We explain it by looking within our own hearts, by looking around us, and realizing that the same temptations that led the majority of Israelites to walk away from God's king are still present with us now, and they're the same temptations that tempt us to walk away from King Jesus, David's greatest son. So we need to know what these temptations are, But before we look at those, we need to know the alternatives. We're faced with a stark choice, with unavoidable alternatives. And here they are. King Jesus confronts you and confronts me today with these two unavoidable alternatives. You and I can either walk away from him, in search of a king who strokes sinners. Or, we can stand with the king who saves sinners. You can't have both. I know how we want both. We like to be stroked, yes. We like to feel good. We like to be affirmed. And we want to be saved. But you can't have both. Do you want a king who strokes your ego? Or do you want a king who can save you from your sinfulness? Those are the unavoidable alternatives. And you may think, well, I'm sitting in a pew today. I'm not walking anywhere, right? I'm here in the flesh, in person. Surely, surely, I'm not in danger of those temptations. Watch out. Watch out. If you think you're standing firm, lest you fall. Because while, yes, you're present bodily, your heart may be far from God. Watch out. Be careful. We need to know what these temptations are so that we can avoid them by God's grace. So we pick up our reading together at verse 41 of chapter 19. Soon, all the men of Israel were coming to the king and saying to him, why did our brothers, the men of Judah, steal the king away and bring him and his household across the Jordan, together with all his men? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, we did this because the king is closely related to us. Why are you angry about it? Have we eaten any of the king's provisions? Have we taken anything for ourselves? Then the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, so we have a greater claim on David than you have. Why then do you treat us with contempt? Weren't we the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the men of Judah pressed their claims even more forcefully than the men of Israel. Now, a troublemaker named Sheba, son of Bekri, a Benjamite, happened to be there. He sounded the trumpet and shouted, We have no share in David, no part in Jesse's son. Every man to his tent, Israel. So all the men of Israel deserted David to follow Sheba, son of Bikri. But the men of Judah stayed by their king all the way from the Jordan to Jerusalem. So here's the question. When are we most likely to walk away from King Jesus? The first example we see here is when distractions abound. When distractions abound. And this is what we see as the Israelites are bringing David back to Jerusalem. Before they get to Jerusalem, they're assembling at a place called Gilgal, just across the Jordan River. They're almost to Jerusalem. They're almost there. And yet, wouldn't you know, this is when conflict breaks out. When regional rivalries become most pronounced. When the 10 northern tribes of Israel become indignant at the tribe of Judah, the southern tribe, And they say, look at you people from Judah. Why are you trying to bring the king in? And as we saw last week, pride is driving this conflict. Judah says, well, he's from our tribe, of course. Shouldn't we be the ones to bring the king in? Shouldn't we get that privilege? He's from our hometown. He's one of us. And then the tribes of Israel play the majority card. Well, you know, there are 10 tribes in the north, right? So we have 10 shares in David compared to your one or two if you count Benjamin. And the tribes of Judah press their claims even more forcefully so that they went out. And the rebellion is initiated. So how could they become so distracted? I mean, they're in the presence of the king. The king chosen by God the king to whom God has promised an eternal kingdom. They have the opportunity to exalt him and for God to get the glory. And then it devolves into infighting. How is this possible? For the same reason that today we're in the Lord's house. On the Lord's day, we've got the word of the Lord open before us. It's being opened up as faithfully as possible, from this pulpit. We've been singing the praises of God. I mean, what could go wrong? All kinds of things can go wrong, as a matter of fact, in this room, at this moment, because distractions are all around us. And these distractions, I have to say, tend to crop up in the midst of pomp and circumstance. Not just the song, but when we're in the throes of ritual, and we're trying to get it right, and we're following a prescribed schedule, and everyone is on their toes and on their best behavior. This is when we're most distracted because it's when we're most focused on ourselves and not on the Lord. Beware of distractions, even in places that seem safe. And here's what this looks like in a worship service. Somehow, some way, we can find a way to make a worship service about anything and everything except what it's supposed to be about. What does that look like? Well, it takes a focus on music. And this is why worship wars break out in churches. You ever heard of a worship war? You've got some folks that say, I like that organ, keep singing those hymns, I want to know the music. And You've got others that say, no, 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 I like the guitar, we need to be contemporary, we need to be modern. And around and around it goes. You know this. And the problem is not the music. God is glorified by music, he has ordained music, he wants us to sing his praises. The problem is when we see music as a means to an end. Instead of as an end in itself to praise God, we turn it into a means. We need to have this music because this music will draw people. We need to have this music because when that instrument is played, I get a euphoric feeling. And I really like that. I get a buzz. And we like that. We want that. But it's not about the feelings. It's not about the euphoria. This is an end in itself. Praise God. Oh, distractions abound. And as we're supposedly worshiping, we're thinking, I didn't really like that song. Ooh, I don't think we should let her sing again. Right? Oh, why are we not using that instrument more? Just contrast our mindset with, say, Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, the birthday of the church, surely that should be a good model, a good example for what we should be doing. And when the Holy Spirit of God is poured out on the people, and they start speaking strange languages, and people start wondering, what is happening? It's it's rushing through like a wind, and the Apostle Peter stands up, and what does he do? Does he say, can can somebody give me a a kind of a a prelude, a little music, for background? kind of set the tone, set a mood before I speak. Can I have a little special music to, to tee this up? No, he stands up and he opens the word of God and he starts preaching from Joel. Then he starts talking about David and it's all pointing to Jesus. He's doing what I'm trying to do right now, which is open the word of God and show how it all points to Jesus. That's what he does. That's what it's about that's how God builds his church. You know why? Because how did God honor that? 3,000 people were added to their number that day. Not because of Peter, but because of the Lord's sovereign grace poured out on sinners, awakening them to their need for salvation from sin. But what tends to happen is we think that's not enough. We can't trust in that. It's not sufficient. We need to be more creative. We need art. We need drama. We need more music. People People won't show up for just a plain and simple exposition of the word of God. Are you kidding me? That won't fly in 2021. Be careful. This is when we're tempted to walk instead of stand. This is where we want stroking, don't we? Play the music I like. Use the instruments I prefer. Be careful. Stand firm. The next thing we see is someone who capitalizes this division. He leverages it, and his name is Sheba. The first half of verse 1. Now a troublemaker named Sheba, son of Bichri, a Benjamite, happened to be there. And a couple details about him. He's a troublemaker. Literally, he's a man of Belial. Belial is a Hebrew word that means wickedness, rebellion. Various individuals are called men of Belial, the sons of Eli. If you remember that from 1 Samuel, they're corrupt. They're extorting money from the people. They're called men of Belial. Well, a similar kind of troublemaker, someone who wants to capitalize on this situation arises, and he's a Benjamite. What do we need to know about that? This is the tribe of Saul. This is the tribe of David's first rival, the one who was so viciously jealous over David that he wanted nothing but to kill David. That's where he's from, and so he sees his opportunity. It's time for our family. It's time for our tribe to rise up and be vindicated. Here's our chance to overthrow David, this usurper. So he sounds the trumpet and assembles the majority of people. He calls them. And so what you need to know, when we are most tempted to walk is when distractions abound and when novelty calls. When novelty calls. Prior to this, David had no rival. So the only alternatives for the Israelites and the people from Judah was, well, David. David. So they fight over him. But now, oh, here's someone else who's a rival. Here's a contender. He says, I'll lead you. I'll do a better job than him. I'm from Benjamin, follow me. Come on, who's with me? Now there's a decision. Now there's an option. And for many of us, this alternative, these these options, don't really come to the surface until we leave home. We've graduated from high school, we go to college, we enter the career world, and we're introduced to people who see the world in a radically different way and who have drastically different worldviews and philosophies. And this is where Sheba stands up and says, Hey, listen to me. I have a better word than that. Oh, novelty. Our ears tickle and itch for novelty. We want something new, we want something creative. We can't just rely on what we've heard our whole lives. I can't be good enough. And Sheba says, I'll tell you a better way. But here's what you need to know about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The God we worship today is an unchanging God. And his truth is unchanging. And the good news of Jesus Christ is unchanging from generation to generation. And this is why we read in Jude 3, I urge you, brothers, contend for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. Once and for all. That means that in 100 years from now, if the Lord Jesus has not returned to the world and if Tabernacle Baptist Church is still here on Leesville Road, we should pray and we should hope that the same truth the same gospel is being proclaimed from this pulpit applied to each generation yes but the same faith the same gospel the same truth that's what we should want oh but no we got to keep up with the times we got to stay relevant we got to stay contemporary we got to be modern that that stuff that peter preached at pentecost that won't cut it now No, no, no. we got to change the message. And and many will tell you, this is what's wrong with the church. This is why the church is so weak today. It's because we need to get with the times. You can't listen to this old book. You can't trust something that happened 3,000 years ago and trust that that's a word from God. Are you kidding me? That's what Sheba says. You You can't believe that stuff about David, that promise what have we really received from David? Civil war, rebellion. How is there going to be an eternal kingdom built on that? They don't trust in God. They trust in Sheba. They think Sheba can offer them a better alternative so they follow. Contend for the faith. Fight for the faith. Once and for all delivered to the saints because the pool, the pool in my heart The pull in your heart, the pull in all of our hearts is always going to be toward what is new, what is fresh, what is creative. We like that. Know that about yourself and know the unchanging truth of God and lean on the one who is tried and true. Trust that David is God's chosen king. Trust that David's greatest son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the one we can count on. Do you count on him today? Or is your mind wondering, no, 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 no. I, I need a Sheba to help me out. What does he tell them? Look at the second half of verse 1. We have no share in David, no part in Jesse's son, every man to his tent Israel. The next circumstance in which we're tempted to walk away from God's king is when selfishness triumphs. When selfishness triumphs. Notice what he says. We have no share. We have no inheritance. We have no portion in David. There's no future for us in him. Let him go. If you want a future, claim your rights for yourself. It's for the taking. Selfishness. how we love someone who will stroke that ego, don't we? We all do, I do. Who affirms me? Who makes me feel good? Who tells me I don't need to change? Who tells me I'm fine just the way I am? But contrast that with what we read from David in Psalm 16. He says, those who run after other gods will suffer more and more there's always going to be another leader. There's always going to be another God who beckons your name and says, come follow me. I'll stroke your ego. I'll, I'll do what you really want. I'll, I'll grant all your wishes. Just come follow me. Oh, and the seduction of that. But what does David say? Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. Drawing on the same language that Sheba is using to try to allure the Israelites away from God's king to say, no, I'll give you a future. David says, no, God is my future. He is my portion. He is my cup. What else do I need? What else do I need? He is sufficient. Is he sufficient for you today? Or do you want more stroking? No, what we need is to be saved. What we need is not for somebody to try to help us become more happy, to know more peace, to try to know more security. Those are good things. More contentment. The fundamental problem facing you and facing me is that we have sinned against a holy God. And this holy God cannot simply sweep that sin underneath a rug. He can't just put it in a closet. He can't just say, it's okay, don't worry about it. For him to be just, for him to be holy, it must be dealt with. And he has dealt with it, all of it, in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the cross, we see exact justice. And so the alternatives for you are to try to justify yourself with a Sheba, or whoever happens to be most popular at the time, or to trust that what King Jesus did for you on the cross is totally sufficient. That God's mercy, God's grace is available to you, despite the fact that you're drawn to Sheba, despite your rebellion, despite your attempts to try to find something better for yourself, Jesus is sufficient. Is he sufficient for you today? Do you trust in what he's done for you? Well, it will cost you. To be sure, it will cost you. As we read in verse 2, So all the men of Israel deserted David to follow Sheba, son of the But the men of Judah stayed by their king all the way from the Jordan to Jerusalem. We are tempted to walk away from King Jesus, from God's chosen king, When the majority pressures us, when the majority pressures, notice, the vast majority deserts, they walk away, they leave. And whereas Absalom's rebellion was aimed at getting David to leave, getting David to walk away from the throne, Sheba and his rebellion is aimed at getting people to leave David And the same temptation is with us here and now. And graduates, whether you're going to college, whether you're entering the workplace, you need to know that these alternatives lie before you and you may be in the minority a lot. <laughs> and certainly if you go to any major research institution in this country, you will be in the minority. And the sad reality is that when you look at the history of so many of our prestigious and elite universities. So many of them were founded to serve the church. They they were founded to give students a Christian worldview. They were even founded to prepare people for the ministry. But I'm sad to say that so many of them sold that birthright for the pottage of the world's esteem generations ago they sold that birthright and i tell you that not as someone outside but as someone inside as someone who is a product of major research institutions one of them a little lighter shade of blue another one a little darker shade of blue The same result, where they don't trust in God's Word by the majority, and the majority opinion is is aimed at showing you how your Sunday school teachers, your pastors, didn't really know how to read the Bible. And undermining your confidence in the Bible, undermining your confidence in the truthfulness of God's Word, so that you come out on the other side not more confident in your faith, but with more doubts. And so often we think, well, I want to be a free thinker. I want to be independent. I don't want to, I mean, I like Jesus and everything, but I don't really want to nail myself down to any one tradition because, I mean, probably God's like a mountain and there's like this way up and that way up and, you know, I don't want to pin myself down. And we see that as an act of humility. We don't want to be exclusive. And yet Jesus simply won't allow that. Consider his conversation with his disciples in John chapter 6. He's just told them that he is the bread of life. And if they are to know life, they must consume him. And many say, What? That's not only weird, that's impossible. What is he talking about? And we read this in John 6, verse 66. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Oh, yes, people walked away from King Jesus even then. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that You are the Holy One of God. Why stand with Him? Because there is only one King who won't stroke your ego. Who will do for you what you truly need, which is to reconcile you, a sinner, to a holy Father in heaven. And because he's the one who can do that, He has the words of eternal life. You want true life. You want to know what it really means to live. There's no other way but Jesus. He is the Holy One of God. Do you see Him as the one who has the words of eternal life today? Do you see Him as the Holy One of God? It will cost you. He will give you hard teaching. And I can't help but think of those words of C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia about lion, the lion Aslan. At one point, one of the creatures in the story says, Safe? You think he's safe? Who said anything about safe? Have you heard him roar? He's not a tame lion, but he is good, and he is king, and he is on the move. May you see that same truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. No, he's not tame. No, you can't pin him down. No, he won't stroke your ego. No, he won't make you feel good all the time. But he is good, and he is king, and he is on the move. Trust him. Do you believe that he and he alone possesses the words of eternal life? In just a few moments, we're all going to walk out of here and go about our business. But I pray that as you walk away, your heart would stand firm. That your heart would remain resolute in King Jesus, and that He would save you. If you've never known that salvation, if you've never known the power of His grace, if you've never known the power of the Holy Spirit working in you, may this be the day. And if your heart has grown cold and you need to hear the Lion of Judah roar again to wake you up, may this be the day to stiffen your backbone, to give you the perseverance and the patience you need to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints, whether you're in a university, whether you're in the job force, wherever you are. May He do that by His grace and for His glory as we go to Him in prayer today. Lord, we praise you for hard truth. We thank you that you continue to speak clearly, even when we don't want to hear it. Even when we would much rather have our ego stroked. We would rather walk away and, and try to find something better. It just doesn't seem safe enough. It seems too exclusive to follow you. But I thank you, Lord, for the persistence In the repetition, in the echoes of your word, may your truth continue to reverberate within the chambers of our hearts so that we cannot avoid this choice and so that we would, by your grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us, cling to your King, come what may. Unite us, Lord, to King Jesus with all faithfulness and steadfastness, this day and in the days ahead, no matter what trials, no matter what adversity, comes our way. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.